Paul uh, says whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures that we might have hope. So let's turn uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 4 uh, and receive encouragement and have hope awakened in us. If you would, would you stand for the reading of God's uh, word? 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped, encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with the dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. 
He had judged Israel 40 years. And now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Please take your seats. The dictionary defines crisis as a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. And one of the ways you can tell that an idea is important uh, to a people is how many words uh, they have for it. And beneath the definition are these synonyms, calamity, cataclysm, emergency, disaster, predicament, plight, mess, dilemma, quandary, setback, reversal, upheaval, drama, trouble, dire straits, hard times, hardship, adversity, extremity, distress, difficulty, fix. Crisis comes to everybody and we need a, well, we need a lot of words to try to describe it. And crisis can uh, be experienced by us as a place of discouragement, defeat, uh, 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 even a sense that all is lost. We just get disoriented. But crisis can also be a place of great change, of deep learning, where new direction is gained, and where you encounter God. And not all crises are these big moments that are filled with drama. In fact, some of the most difficult crises kind of sneak up on you. They, they start very small. They're almost imperceptible. Take, uh, for example, unanswered prayer. We uh, set our hearts to asking for God to act, and, and we do a heart check, you know. Am I asking for myself? No, this is for God and uh, for uh, his kingdom and, and for other people. And yet, God does not answer. Or we have a pressing need, and uh, we ask, we seek, we knock, and the tenth hour comes, and still there's no answer. And then the eleventh hour arrives, and still we see nothing. And it's 11.30, 11.50, 11.59, midnight comes, and there's still no answer. God has not acted. And then there's those moments when they're just these very uh, strange providences, the way God responds uh, to us just seems, well, it just seems wrong to us. Uh, God sends trouble, hardship, conflict, and loss. When we thought he would send blessing and, and comfort and peace and gain. And there's one thing that almost always guarantees that a crisis will develop. It's the desire to seem and not to be. 
It's the desire to seem to be something, but not actually to be it. To maintain uh, an image, uh, uh, to create a a self uh, for others, to project to others what you want them to think about you. This is Israel's story in our text. Now the Philistines attack and Israel suffers a battlefield defeat. And this is a crisis for the nation. Uh, Israel, uh, how it faces this moment tells us a lot about not just them, but how we ourselves face a crisis. What they did actually only served to deepen the crisis and it exposed a very deep problem in them. Now, Israel's relationship with God seemed to be one thing, but in fact, it was something else altogether. Now, uh, the story's told masterfully, and there's uh, three scenes. There's Israel's initial defeat. Then there's Israel's action to respond uh, to what happened. And then Israel uh, ends by losing uh, the ark. Israel's defeat was a, a crisis. That's the first four uh, verses. The narrator, right at the very uh, top, uh, mentions Samuel, and then Samuel's gone. Actually, we won't see Samuel till chapter uh, 7. And the Philistines are on the move. Now, the Philistines are people that came originally from Crete, and uh, they were materially uh, more advanced than Israel. Uh, they knew how to forge iron. Uh, they had uh, chariots, so they possessed superior military uh, technology. And they were aggressively expansionistic. They wanted more land to live on, just as Israel did. And so the Philistines attack, and Israel loses 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the troops come back, the elders uh, gather together and ask, why has the Lord defeated us? Now, it's a good question. It's really foreign to the way that we think about uh, battles. We think battles are won or lost by military strategy, superior numbers, and better weapons. That's how you win. But the elders and the Philistines uh, believe that battles are determined by God. Uh, The Philistines believe the nation with the strongest God will win. And so the elders uh, decide uh, to bring the ark. Now the ark, the word ark is just a box. That's what ark means. And the elders think that if God's ark, God's box is brought up uh, to the front lines, they will be victorious. Now why would they think such a thing? Well, because of what the ark is, what it represents. Now, the ark wasn't very big. It was a box four by three by three feet. It wasn't a very large box. It had a lid on it and it had two cherubim. Not cherubs, but cherubim. Uh, These uh, were fierce creatures who actually uh, were known throughout the ancient Near East associated with the throne of kings. And uh, the Old Testament tells us uh, the God was enthroned above the cherub. God actually inhabited the empty space in there. There was no image of God there, but God was present uh, there. And in the box were stone tablets. Uh, the Ten Commandments were written on these tablets. This was the very heart of the covenant. 
and it explained how it is that a redeemed people should live in a relationship with uh, the holy God. The box was also the place where the blood of the atonement was sprinkled, and sometimes it was called the lid, the mercy uh, seat. And so the ark pointed to the Lord, uh, to the place uh, of atonement, to the Lord who was present, who was ruling, who was speaking, who was the forgiving God. It was the most important religious symbol that they had as a nation. About their, it was the symbol of their relationship with God. But there's another reason why uh, they are also thinking about the ark, and that has to do with its history. Uh, the ark was built in the wilderness, and the ark played a role in leading uh, uh, the children of Israel through uh, the wilderness. Every time it was lifted up, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you uh, flee. And you'll recall in the Battle of Jericho, it's the ark that's marched around the walls of uh, Jericho. And when Israel shouts, they fall down. All of this is on their minds as they say, Well, the way we'll turn things around is we'll bring the ark uh, up uh, to the front lines. Notice the title. They uh, they call it the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. That language, Lord of Hosts, speaks of God as a warrior. And so they send for the ark, and then there's this dark music that's playing. As the narrator mentions, who's carrying the ark? Uh, uh, Phineas and, and Elie, excuse me, Hophni and Phineas, Eli's wicked sons. And um, the elders believe as they bring the ark up, the very power of God is going to come up to the battlefield. Uh, and for them, the ark is a weapon. It, it's not entirely unlike the way the ark is portrayed in Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost uh, Ark. It's a source of power. And they think they're committing God uh, to battle. Uh, that God will have to fight for them and he will defeat their enemies. That's a good place to pause and reflect on what they're doing here. Because they are not worshiping God, they're not seeking God, they're using God. They see the ark as a weapon that they can use uh, at their own discretion for uh, their own military ends. And You know, if you stop and think about this, we're kind of prone to this ourselves. Um, Just think about how it is uh, that uh, we approach God in a crisis, how we try to get him to rescue us, to solve a problem, uh, to act in the way uh, that we want, or how we might use him to try to avoid a problem, uh, to, you know, well, to purchase some kind of spiritual insurance uh, policy. Sometimes people do it in kind of a blatant way when they bargain with God. They say, God, if you'll step in here, I'll blank. Just fill in the blank with whatever you like. Could be change my ways or come to church or be more uh, generous, whatever it is. Uh, Or we pressure God. We engage in a kind of a, a, a spiritual lobby. You know, it might be with our spiritual disciplines. It might be giving ourselves uh, to prayer or fasting or or doing good works. Uh, Thinking, God, you've just got to notice uh, what I'm doing here. Uh, Parents do this um, with our children. We think, God, I have done everything right with my kids. And so they have to turn out right. You have to cause them uh, to turn out right. 
or we expect God to bless whatever we're doing. We think, well, uh, I'm a faithful employee, or I'm running my business in a manner of integrity, and therefore I should enjoy uh, success and material prosperity. Or churches think, well, this program, we're doing this for God. He must come uh, and bless this, or our efforts to reach uh, the community should be uh, met with effectiveness or um, the what we're doing to try to address the ills of the nation. Absolutely, God has to act. The counselor and author Larry Crabb, I think, put his finger on it when he said, we follow God thinking he must give us the life we want. And if he doesn't, we are disappointed with him, and we conclude that Christianity doesn't work. Now, the second scene is Israel's solution to its crisis. The ark comes up into the Israelite camp. Now, Israel shouts just like they did when the walls of Jericho uh, fell. Uh, but this has exactly the opposite effect on the Philistines as they uh, expected it to. Uh, the Philistines, as they hear the war uh, cry, um, and acknowledge that a God has come to battle, they resolve to fight with all that's in them. And what takes place is a decisive defeat. 30,000 more Israelites die on the battlefield. God's box is taken. Now there's a couple of lessons here for us as well. The Lord will allow you to suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. To seem rather than to be. Now, let me say that again. The Lord will allow you to suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. You see, Israel is using the ark like a magic weapon. But the very name by which they call it, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, uh, points to their covenantal obligations. They're really without excuse. If they had considered those covenant obligations, they would have recognized that their relationship with God was not what it should be. And here's a corollary, another lesson. You, uh, God will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. You see, their false expectations are allowed to fall completely apart. God does what they couldn't imagine he would do. He lets his box uh, be exiled into Philistine in the hands of the Philistines. It's just unimaginable that God would allow that to happen. And God will allow you to be disappointed in him, to awaken you to the reality of who he actually is. Now, you may be troubled by this passage at a number of levels. Uh, You might be troubled that 34,000 people uh, die. But there's a spiritual principle uh, here of reaping and sowing. Now, there was a young man who called his pastor uh, late one night and asked if he could get together uh, with him, and they set up an appointment for breakfast in the morning. And the next morning, the young man told him 
that while on a business trip, he had stayed too late at the hotel bar uh, with a woman colleague. And as the easy laughter and the alcohol and the evening wore on, the inevitable happened. They ended ended up, as you would expect, in bed together. Now what? asked uh, the man. And the pastor took a deep breath. And for a moment, he thought, just I'll tell your wife about it. I think, you know, in his mind, he's thinking about all the consequences for his marriage and the children. And he says, just cover it up. But then uh, he thinks, that's a terrible thing to get this pattern of deception started uh, in this man's uh, life. And so to make the young man to think biblically about his situation, he posed some questions to him. He said, had you come to God and asked for forgiveness? Had you confessed your sin to the young woman and told her it will never happen again? Have you confessed your sin to your wife and asked her forgiveness? And if you haven't done that last step just yet, have you made arrangements to have a test to be sure that you won't bring some terrible disease home? His wife was expecting. Well, the young man listened to each of these questions, and he didn't show any response at all on his face. And when the pastor was done, he pushed his plate uh, forward and said, uh, Pastor, I came for grace. You disappoint me, Pastor. And the words cut the pastor to the heart. And it wasn't because he thought he'd said the wrong thing to this man. No, it was that he wondered what he'd said in the years that this man had been under his ministry that would lead him to conclude that there were no consequences for his wrongdoing. The death of 34,000 people was the consequence of what was wrong in Israel's relationship with God. Now, what should the elders have done? Well, they should have taken stock of their relationship with God. They should have asked God to reveal to them where they actually weren't living out the demands of the covenant. Just remember, I keep saying this every week, the background for this story is the period of the judges. Early on in that uh, book, you'll see that Israel recognized their military failure uh, was linked to the sin in their lives. And so they turned to God in repentance. And when they repented, they experienced a military victory. But in that book, that book progressively goes through cycle after cycle of Israel falling into sin and Israel suffering and becoming miserable and then crying out and God raising up someone to deliver them. But the thing you're supposed to see, and you'd have to kind of speed read the book in some ways and think about what's being said, is that what's happening is is that the judges, as a means of dealing with Israel's problem, is increasingly ineffective. Uh, The judges are increasingly uh, people that lack uh, character and integrity. And so the last judge is Samson. And after that, uh, we see Israel, who's no longer repentant in the the last chapters from 17 to 21, that leaves us seeing exactly what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Where they act on the basis of their wisdom and what they think is pragmatic 
instead of what's been revealed as God's principles. So the elders should have stopped and they should have begun repenting. They should have asked for God to reveal what was wrong. They probably should have asked Samuel uh, to come, but they didn't do any of those uh, things. God desires that we live lives of repentance and faith. Now, repentance uh, is at its core turning from myself and turning uh, from my idols, the things I think I absolutely have to have to make life worthwhile. It is not promising that I'll do better next time. Uh, To repent means to turn toward a God who you know you've offended, a God who you know that you have betrayed, uh, who has every right to be angry with you. But I want you to hear this, because repentance is not transactional. It's not like buying something at the store or filling your gas tank up. No, it's relational. And so how you think about God, how you conceive your relationship with him, will uh, drastically impact what actually happens. If you think that God is angry and wrathful towards you, that he's abandoned you, he doesn't care uh, for you, uh, that he's neglecting you, then you will come to him in one way. But if you believe that you are his child and he is a father who is good and gracious, and yes, will discipline you when you do uh, wrong, then you'll respond in a different way. You see, if you believe that God is not harsh, and condemning a perfectionist who can never be pleased, you'll come to him one way. You'll be soft. You'll be humble. But if you think he's turned his back on you, you'll do something entirely different. What happens over here is people begin to say, oh, I'm, going to be, I'm going to do the right thing next time. It's external, and they seek to bring about some change in their behavior versus turning to Christ, forsaking their sin, hating uh, their sin, and growing in a love uh, for God. Israel is stunned by what happens next. The ark is gone. And we see, uh, first of all, in the last scene, that the word of God is fulfilled. The word of judgment against Eli's household. And it's really told uh, masterfully. In fact, the book of Samuel uh, is uh, like the story of Joseph, the most masterfully extended told story in all of Scripture. But just consider how it's told. So a man runs from the battlefield to Shiloh. His clothes are torn. His dust on his head. He's he's, uh, showing all the visible signs of mourning. And Eli's there watching at the gate. But Eli, remember, he's blind. He's fearful for the ark. And we're told that he's infirm and passive and incapacitated. He is the seer of Israel. He can't function. He's not functioning uh, as he should. And uh, the man brings the report and there's an outcry. The very last word of the report It's about the ark of God. The very last thing is told at the end. And uh, the outcry is such uh, that Eli asks, what's happened? And the man comes over and uh, tells him. Tells him that there's been a defeat. 
that his sons are dead and the ark has been taken and he falls over backwards and breaks his neck and dies. At that very uh, moment, Phineas's wife, who is expecting, goes into early labor. And she names her son Ichabod. That means glory, where, where, it really means where the glory. Where is the glory? And then she finishes, rounds it off with the glory has departed from Israel. You know, she doesn't seem to care that she's giving birth uh, to a child, um, uh, even a son, uh, for her eyes seem centered almost exclusively on the loss of the ark. But she has the presence of mind in her travail to name her son for the crisis that it is. God's glory has departed from Israel. Now, in one sense, she was right, and in another sense, she was wrong about this. You see, the loss of the ark is the lowest point in Israel's history since their enslavement in Egypt. Because the ark symbolizes the loss of their unique relationship with God. And it leaves their future as his people in question. Ralph Davis comments perceptively, on this day, it seems that the Lord, the God of Israel, has been dishonored. But in fact, he is beginning to protect his honor and restore it. The evil sons of Eli will no longer dishonor the name of God. Even for the moment, it seems that in Philistines, uh, the ark will be dishonored. We'll see in the next couple of weeks that's not true. All of this points us to Jesus. It points us to Good Friday. Because on Good Friday, the Lord's Messiah is dishonored and degraded. And it seems that everything is lost. But in fact, God is acting in those very moments to do what would seem so strange to us. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment. He foreshadowed everything that the ark represented. The ark represented God's presence, the the footstool of his throne. And Jesus, who is the true king, in whom the fullness of God dwells, hangs on a cross. And there, the glory of the giving of God, the God who redeems and rescues his people, is being revealed, though it seems hidden from people at the moment. The ark holds the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus, in dying on the cross, is inaugurating a new covenant. A new covenant where the people of God are not only forgiven for their past, but are granted a heart and a mind that loves God's ways and is enabled to obey him. The very tokens of the past are in the ark. There is a jar of manna and Moses' staff all pointing to the moment of the exodus where God rescues them. But in fact, all of the exodus and all of those events pointed forward to the one great redemption, the work of rescue that God was actually accomplishing through Jesus on the cross. The ark was the place of atonement. And the cross, which in Mark is in fact Jesus' throne, 
is the place of atonement. It's the mercy seat. The very symbol of God's power is lost in this day as the ark is carried away. But in the weakness of Christ, the power of God that is stronger than the power of man is being revealed. And as a result, we are made more than conquerors. To seem and not to be. That was Israel's problem. And because they acted uh, uh, out of that, it brought a crisis for them. We all are in a low-intensity spiritual crisis every day because we are sufferers in a fallen world who respond to our suffering with sin, and we are sinners who, in our acts, cause others to suffer. We are suffering sinners and sinning sufferers. And we all struggle in the midst of our suffering and sin to want to put the best face on it. We want to seem like we're something we're not. We'd rather seem to be people of a certain sort than to actually be the people we are. And so let's turn to the one who became sin for us, the one who's become our righteousness. Let's not be afraid of recognizing that we are still sinners, but we've been declared uh, righteous. And let us with confidence that you know, all that may be puzzling in life, that God himself is at work for our good and his glory. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, fill our hearts and minds, the theater of our hearts and minds, with the glory of Christ and what he's done for us in his living and his dying, his rising again. And now he's ascended on the heavens. We thank you that he's ruling and reigning in us. And so we give you thanks, Father, and ask that all the folly that we have within us, trying to use you, uh, manipulate you, our expectations that are false to who you are and what you've said you will be and the promises you've made to us, Lord, we forsake them. You are enough for us. We pray this in Christ.